0: I have an yeah, idea close. for an opening joke. Yes, it could be something like: "So I we're mean. here to discuss the art of David
1: Wanarwich. <laughs> watch <laughs> I, I think that we should have a two and a half minute segment on the pronunciation of his name. Wanarwich. Well, wrong.
0: Watch Naraudits is how I used watch. to say it.
1: I was saying <laughs> I was saying one year. Wannerwich. Well, the thing that really threw me off is that the
2: tour guide who was in the Whitney when I went to see it was not pronouncing it Wojnarowicz, which made me
1: second-guess everything. Okay, so <laughs> I know. Voy- of course it's Wojnarowicz. It, it is. Yeah. Nicole-Ann
0: I- sent me a Slack email, or <laughs> not an email, sorry. She messaged me on Slack, which is our inter-office form of communication. Right. And she put the emphasis on row, but I still didn't know that, I mean, she didn't tell me that the V was, sorry, that the W was pronounced the V.
1: Yeah, I only learned that the W was pronounced with a V yesterday, Yeah, mm-hmm. but it would make sense that it is.
0: I listened to the audio guide. So,
1: so just, in,
2: just in case we're wrong, you can blame the New York Times obituary. That's where we're getting all of this it's from. D- it's, yeah. How
0: do you pronounce it? It's David
1: Vojnarovic. David Vojnarovic. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the recent David Vojnarovic exhibition at the Whitney Museum that's set to close quite soon. It opened on July 13th and friends had been chatting about it a lot. And of course, my colleagues, Nicole Ann and Griffin Olenek, saw the show and had so much to say about it that I thought that I ought to make my way down to the meatpacking district myself. So Nicole Ann, can you tell us a bit about Voynorovich? what you knew of him or know of him now, Mm -hmm. and why you (laughs) thought that you ought to get down to the Whitney.
2: So to be completely honest, I actually knew almost nothing about David Voinarovitch until I was browsing with Griffin. We have this lovely spreadsheet of all the upcoming art exhibits in the city that we might want to see.
0: Yeah, which Nicole and created. It's very helpful. <laughs> Intern tasks,
2: <laughs> and um, I saw this really well, like critically acclaimed show, "History Keeps Me Awake at Night." Really, the thing that drew me to it in the first place was the idea of engaging with history as being the central premise to an artist's entire work. Although I knew nothing about David Voinarovich, I actually work on this artist from India. Her name is Nalini Malani. Her entire body of work is predicated upon dealing with Eastern and Western mythology as a way of understanding forms of violence against women in India today. And upon seeing the David Rovis show, I completely saw a lot of the engagement with the same issues that Milani has, which are drawing on the ways in which certain populations have been completely devalued and deemed outcast through society, like in society for like generations since like the beginning of time. So I guess, uh, you know, kind of engaging with history as a way of um, collective memory and also kind of this new form of like solidarity found through grieving with other people, Mm. encountering the same issues as you. The thing that drew me to the Wojnarowicz show was basically just the engagement Mm. with history and how that's kind of a big trope that you can see across many postmodern and contemporary artists Mm. who turn to the past to create new mechanisms of healing and collective memory in the face of trauma. That seems to be entirely, or at least a large part of what David Wojnarowicz does in his work, Mm. which is incredibly diverse in the number of media that he bends across. Mm. This seems to be the central theme of looking to what has happened in the past to understanding our
1: contemporary moment. Mm. It became evident over the course of sort of walking through the exhibition, which is organized sequentially, that he did start out as a writer. Like, though text doesn't appear in every work, every work is completely packed full of symbolism. And each either series or piece sort of has its own narrative. Mm -hmm. We're not looking at just straight collage. We're not looking at assemblage. We're not looking at painting. We're looking at like a narrative Mm -hmm. on a piece, Uh, or at least I thought so, like especially in the people, people paintings, the like the paintings that had really small images within the larger image. Your point about him working in many forms of media, I think is one of the things that made the exhibition so exciting. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about if you could suppose what it must have been like for him to be making this work in the moment with the judgment, pressure, scrutiny, also deep sense of grief that he must have been experiencing so many of his friends passing away because of the AIDS crisis. I think that because this is 30 years later, and because we understood the way AIDS ravaged the New York art scene in the 80s, we bring a set of presuppositions onto the work. But I wonder how different it must have been to be engaging with this work in the moment.
2: Mm. Wojnarowicz was facing tremendous stakes in like, creating this work. And you can almost see that in like the rapidity with which he transitions between different styles of media, like it's almost like he has this urgency, this message that he's not quite sure how to perfectly capture. So he tries out all these different ways of trying to get it across.
0: There's a huge sense of experiment going on.
2: Exactly. Yeah. There's like a very... and There's the
0: excitement of experimentation.
2: But you know, the thing that strikes me most about the experimentation found in his work is that it's much less um, like a lot of artists who are contemporary who are doing it just to be cutting edge. Mm. In fact, David Voinarovich, like you get the sense that he doesn't really care about his identity as an artist that much. It's more that he feels like he has this message that he urgently just needs to convey. Uh I think there is like definitive proof of this um, sort of rejection of any sort of label as like a groundbreaking artist in that when he was included in the Whitney's 1985 biennial, his biographer, Cynthia Carr, met him and congratulated him for this prestigious honor. You know, any artist's dream would be to be included in such a prestigious biennial. Instead, he scowled and he said he hated the art world. And he had this one line that Cynthia Carr says is an exact quote which is that if I were straight, I'd move to a small town right now and get a job in a gas station. So it's not that he wanted to be an artist. He was much more motivated by the fact that his friends were dying, like you mm-hmm. said, Megan. And like he was watching this crisis unfold before his eyes. Mm-hmm. And he was just so frustrated by the apathy of government. And even before it, like his work takes a definitive turn towards almost exclusively dealing with the AIDS crisis or the AIDS epidemic – you see this frustration he has just with these larger institutions, like it's with institutional injustice, with with like systemic discrimination, with this theme of like kind of disowning, like the little guy, like looking looking down on people who um, maybe don't have the same access to agency and power as you do. That continues throughout history. It's not just it's not exclusive to the AIDS crisis at all.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Griffin, can you tell us a little bit about David Voinarovich's? upbringing?
0: Sure. Well, he died young, he died at age 37. So he'd only actually been an artist for about 20 years. And before that, he was born, I think, in either New York City or the suburbs of New York City in New Jersey. And his childhood was incredibly troubled. He had an absent father, an abusive mother. He left home early, was not quite addicted to drugs, though did experiment heavily with drugs, had also been a sex worker in lower Manhattan, which is kind of where he found himself in that milieu. In the 1980s, he started producing art. They worked for about 20 years, had gone through a number of aesthetic styles, had made important contacts in the art world, especially with the photographer Peter Hujar. But then towards the end of his life, he gets deeply involved in activism, becomes you know an advocate for the gay rights movement. So it's really this, this interesting trajectory, this arc that that the Whitney show traces, History Keeps Me Awake at Night, just gives us a, a good taste of his life, what it was like. It begins with his earliest experimentation with photography, it takes us through his brief musical career, uh, his, his, oh, yeah. his work as a stencil artist, his foray into mask making. So he has a set of alien masks that he creates. He, he you know, kind of jams stuff together from objects that he finds, he gets back into photography uh, where he meets Peter Hujar, who gets him into painting. So he starts painting a lot continues sculpting, and then he, he makes his way into activism. So it really draws this, this circle of... Um, he had a message that he wanted to communicate. The show does a great job of getting that out.
2: That was excellent. <laughs> that was a very good overview. Um-
0: could you tell us, and there's been some controversy about the show at the same time that it's, it's been lauded by you know every publication we can think of. It's not been without no. controversy.
2: You're right. There, <laughs> there has been a little bit of backlash to the way that the Whitney curated and displayed the specific show and that the organization ACT UP, which is an acronym for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power – actually staged a protest at the exhibition, suggesting that the Whitney failed to really connect this retrospective or this show, whatever you want to call it, to the current ongoing mm-hmm. HIV-AIDS epidemic, in a sense that really seems to historicize it. Mm-hmm. and. That of course, like the Whitney. Well, this this will get into a later issue of what it means to really represent contemporary challenges in an institution space, because the Whitney, as an institution, mm-hmm. has a certain set of responsibilities mm-hmm. to really address the ongoing relevance of this crisis, and or does it? I think that's the question. Does it? Does it? Yeah. Well, well,
1: no, I mean, that's for the... Yeah.
2: yeah. That's, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I guess. Well, the, the criticism of ACT UP was that it's it makes the AIDS crisis seem like a thing of the past, especially mm-hmm. in the way a lot of some of the placards are written saying, you know, the crisis of the 80s and 90s while failing mm-hmm. to completely acknowledge the fact that it is ongoing and this is a struggle that a lot of people are still dealing with. It's not Certainly. completely solved yeah. yet. Right, <laughs> And ACT UP, by the way, is actually the same organization that Voynarovich was involved with hmm. during his activism. So it's almost like a, a responsibility that they had to kind of consult with ACT UP in the way that the, in my opinion, I think that they should have had more of a sense of urgency to deal with
1: ACT UP while curating the show. Yeah, no, I guess I kind of have a question for the group, whether or not. So like, I think Vonorovich is an artist whose activism was at the very heart of his artistic practice. Mm-hmm. These things were never separate. But very often there are artists who don't intend to be activists when they begin making their work. But because of the conceptual realities of the work,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it would be irresponsible for them not to take an activist approach. So there's a cause which needs some visual representation. The cause finds an artist whose work would serve that cause well. And of course, then the artist has the option of getting involved and they do. So I'm thinking like Wojnarowicz always was eager and willing to be an activist. The work served his activism well, (laughs) but I wonder what it means to be a curator Mm -hmm. and what if exhibitions can serve in the role of activism. I think that historically, certainly we have seen them do such but i think that's a really fascinating question and it's actually what are thing. we as participants like right. are we participating <clears throat> in the activism by viewing the exhibition or is it more passive than that right
2: that's really it's a great point you bring up because something that i find particularly appealing about Wojnarowicz is how you can kind of trace this lineage to which he belongs of these outcast, avant-garde New York City artists who I think really came to the forefront during the 1960s. And artists I would include in that vein include people like um, Claes Oldenburg, Ken Jacobs, Jack Smith, who are dealing with the manifestations of late-stage capitalism in New York and the way that they treat human beings increasingly as expendable objects instead of as actual People, you know, as like self contained. And so I guess the first iteration, I think, of what you're getting at, which is um, sort of the institution almost devaluing the point of what an artist is trying to convey, would probably be with Claes Oldenburg's The Street, which is this performance in which Oldenburg gathered all these found objects and kind of created these giant shapes and these plaster cast molds to convey the sense of detritus incarnate or human trash that kind of goes along with. Uh, Greenwich Village, where he used to live, becoming gentrified. And then a gallery decided that they wanted to show... The same works in which he had initially created, uh, which were shown in a church basement, um, the Judson Memorial Church basement, they incorporated them into the gallery space. But the very act of bringing these objects from, you know, a sort of avant-garde informal exhibition space into an actual into part of the art institution meant that it changed the very nature of what was being conveyed. The whole terms of like being exhibited was like completely different. Like these these pieces were like really nicely, fancily hung up from the ceiling, and the people who would enter the gallery space, like who was seeing. Them. They were mm-hmm. people who were privileged, right? They had the access to these spaces. They weren't necessarily the same detritus incarnate mm-hmm. that Klaes Oldenburg was really producing these works for. So what I
0: found so interesting <coughs> also about the Wojnarowicz exhibit was mm-hmm. that, I mean, in my view, the curators sort of foregrounded the artist's relationship to the place where he worked, which was mm-hmm. which was the meatpacking district. Right. You know, when Wojnarowicz was working there, it was Skid Row. There were abandoned warehouses along the Hudson River where artists, drug dealers, uh, pimps, prostitutes, people would sort of (laughs) gather. There was frequent violence. And the show foregrounds this. Now, the Meatpacking District, where the the Whitney building currently stands, is one of the wealthiest, most posh neighborhoods of Manhattan. And so one of Wojnarowicz's central concerns, which was the rising tide of capitalism. He he would, you know, it often look down at Lower Manhattan, at the skyscrapers, including the World Trade Center, which still stood, mm-hmm. and he would feel this great sense of fear. So many of his works talk about US militarism and imperialism, the <laughs> the drama of manifest destiny in the US. <laughs> and he saw that happening in Lower Manhattan. Right. And so the Whitney it's so so interesting building itself kind of makes you or doesn't make you, but invites you to go out on its terraces outside and look at, at the things that are surrounding you. So, you know, you see the expensive condos, right. you see the people sitting inside of their expensive condos, <laughs> and you're like, he was right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, capitalism really is kind of taking over. And it, it's, you know, right. the only people who could afford to be artists uh, in the meatpacking meat district now are, you know, basically nobody. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think the Whitney is very much aware that it's, privileged museum and a privileged space with an endowment, etc. But it has this real duty uh, to speak to the concerns of now. And that, that's what struck me so much about this exhibit. I think we were texting with each other. and We were saying, Oh, my God, you have to go and see this. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Right. So I'm wondering, Nicole, then, do you have a favorite piece of his from the show or a favorite section of the show? That you could talk about?
2: I absolutely do. I think that the room I found the most moving in the show was sort of the culminating room, like the last part of the fifth floor in which all of these works that kind of were created right before leading up to the artist's death were exhibited. And it's almost as if after experimenting with so many different styles, he was able to find the perfect blend Mm. of what worked best for him. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the works in this room are... Kind of going back to his roots, like you mentioned earlier, um, silver gelatin prints mm. superimposed with the text that he wrote. So he kind of also returns to his origins as a writer, mm. not so much a visual artist. And the work I liked in particular was a gelatin silver print called What is This Little Guy's Job in the World? And it's from 1990. It was created two years before Wojnarowicz would die. Perhaps mm. a little bit less than two years. It's a really striking image. I'll try to. I'll do my best to give a visual analysis for our listeners. The majority of the frame is taken up by a hand in which, just the tiny space between the thumb and like the index finger lies a small, tiny like frog. I'm not even sure.
1: I think it is a frog, but it's like. I yeah, think it's a frog. I think yeah. It's- yeah, I don't think it's a composite of a photo. I think no. it's just a photo of a frog.
0: No, but it's like a tree frog, like incredibly, yeah. like it's like, it's abs- you know, tiny. the size of a thumbnail. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely tiny. And it's it's like reaching out almost as if it's about, it's like looking over the edge of its holder's thumb. Like, it's, it's, like it wants to jump off, but it can't. And I found the text. That's Would you like on, to read the text, Griffin?
0: Sure. Yeah, it's got a text in the upper right-hand corner of the frame. And Wojnarowicz himself was a, he yeah. was a writer, as you mentioned, Nicole and right. You know, I think he's a great writer, but so let me just, <laughs> let me give it a chance, <laughs> uh, a shot. It reads, what is this little guy's job in the world? If this little guy dies, does the world know? Does the world feel this? Does something get displaced? If this little guy dies, does the world get a little lighter? Does the planet rotate a little faster? If this little guy dies, without his body to shift the currents of air... Does the air flow perceptibly faster? What shifts if this little guy dies? Do people speak language a little bit differently? If this little guy dies, does some little kid somewhere wake up with a bad dream? Does an almost imperceptible link in the chain snap? Will civilization stumble? Oh, so it's quite moving.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's incredibly moving. and it,
0: It's incantatory in its repetitions.
2: Yeah, and the way that, you know, I think the context of this being one of Vojnarovic's last works, you know, created leading up to his death, or the years leading up to his death, makes us realize that in a lot of his works, he was actually meditating on his own smallness, Mm. on this deep cognizance he had of his own humility and Mm. his own almost like irrelevance in the grand scheme of things Mm -hmm. the great order of things so even though he knew his death was imminent it Mm -hmm. was like he was going to try to make as much noise as he could try to get he had this imperative to try to get his message out as much as he could before the death that he knew was looming in the Mm -hmm. distance watching it happen to all of his friends was Mm -hmm. like so near it's
0: Mm -hmm. difficult to imagine that context where not only do you know you're gonna die but all of your friends around you are dying Mm -hmm. it it takes on this kind of apocalyptic sense so I found this I, I I remember, you know, standing in the room looking at the same print and, you know, I was listening to the <laughs> I was listening to Wojnarowicz's yeah. voice recording on the audio guide. And, you know, tears are like streaming down my face. And then somebody taps me on the shoulder and they're like, hey, where did you get that audio guide? <laughs> like, <laughs> so, uh, but it's incredible. It's like, uh, you know, he was this almost like a prophet. Um, the, the
1: recording of the performance piece that he did that upset so many people was deeply moving. I forget how it finally ends, but I, it's very escalating. Like it starts mm-hmm. off kind of like recounting his ills and transgressions mm-hmm. and like systemic problems. And then he like personalizes it. Maybe we, we can pull the work at some point for people to see. But I think it ends with him saying something like a sense of grief, a sense of anger, like this rebellious streak that he had Mm. must have been motivating his practice at the time. Mm. But certainly it was almost like he was trying to like exercise some of the loss that he had to have been experiencing and all of the subjugation that he had been experiencing some of these oppositional groups. Mm. So you've mentioned a little bit about how ACT UP, the organization that he had been involved with, had some misgivings about the exhibition. Can you talk a little bit about how the religious right of the late 80s received his work, some of the pushback that he received from his work. And then can you maybe flip their pushback and tell us a little bit how perhaps religious folks who, who, who are uncomfortable seeing images of Christ defaced, how they might encounter his work I'm imagining like going to this exhibition with my some of my my parents and my friends, mm-hmm. and they would probably be troubled and sort mm-hmm. of hurt by representations of Christ in his work. But I think that's because they're seeking to subjugate Voinovitch to like their own way of being in the world, instead yeah. of understanding how he had to have been in the world. Right. And, and I very much I think of the uh, talking about one of his early collages that he caught a lot of heat for, uh, that shows Christ um, shooting up. I think about that work, he said, Mm -hmm. certainly the life of the drug addict is the life of the sinner, the Mm -hmm. life of the modern sinner, and Christ came to identify with sinners. So, yeah, can you maybe help someone with a religious sensibility understand how they should make room for his work? No, certainly that's
2: a big concern. In fact, when I saw this collage, it's entitled "Untitled Genet after Bracai," and it's from 1979, so it's one of his earlier pieces. Before reading the placard next to it, I was met with like shock. <laughs> like I didn't. I mean, it was one of the earlier pieces in the show, and it basically shows the writer Genet kind of like depicted as a saint with like a glowing orb behind his head. And in the background, you have an image of Christ looking sort of crazed. His eyes are rolling back in his head Mm -hmm. and he has a needle coming out of his arm and it's almost as if he's looking up towards some light and you can tell that it's um, a depiction of Christ like shooting up like uh, as a drug addict. I know we were talking about this earlier, yes, or yesterday at lunch, and I know Megan like mentioned that this kind of fits into this this larger trajectory of a lot of artists who reappropriated Christ, who had up until around this point in art history been seen as representative of the Western elites, like this, mm-hmm. uh, this elite institution, the arts institution that kind of appropriated him as an image of power. But with artists like David Wojnarowicz showing Christ as a sinner, a drug addict, he kind of goes back, in my opinion, to Christ's roots. And there's this artist I really like, Francis Souza, who has this line in his autobiographical piece that I think really fits in well with what Wojnarowicz was trying to say, which is that, "...the Western Christian world has never understood the truly oriental dictum of Christ. It voluntarily resorts to terrifying might against whatever it considers is evil." and times even to mean spite. Mm. So that means, like, and sometimes, like, there's elements of misunderstanding, there's, like, judgment towards what certain groups are doing. The group in America that's kind of considered... At this time, like the group of power, like the, the the right, would invoke Christ against like drug addicts, like sinners, but by homosexuals. Yeah, homosexuals, exactly, like yeah. prostitutes. All and that men. was
0: something that Bonorovichch himself faced, right? Right. So he mentions in one of his pieces the the parishioners standing out St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York on Fifth Avenue, chanting, "You won't be here next year because you'll be dead.". Right. You know? yeah. And so I, the hatred that he had to contend with, even in the Catholic Church in which he was raised.
2: Yeah, it's understanding that Christ himself came to heal sinners, right? To heal mm-hmm. people who were broken. Christ was kind of like an anti-institutional like revolutionary. He wasn't the sort mm-hmm. of, you know, like judgmental, like... Uh, Pharisee. Exactly, like the Pharisee that he's made out to be by a lot of the right-wing groups in America at the time. And dare I say even to today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so by kind of like reappropriating that image of Christ to be among the people instead of like above them mm-hmm. and like, looking down on them, it can be shocking but it forces us to reckon with what Christ's true message was. And I think that's really important to Wojnarowicz.
1: Hmm. I grew up in a tradition much like the one that you described that would find a way of making themselves the victims of his artwork. So I'm a religious person. I have reverence for images of Christ. Therefore, everything that he's doing is wrong. And like the Alliance Defense Fund, which went by a different name at the time, was saying, like, why should my tax dollars pay for this sort of work? That kind of thing. Like, I was very much steeped in that view. But I realized, like, those sorts of assumptions and projections are really unhelpful. There's nothing about Wojnarowicz's practice or life that should necessitate that he treat images the way I might treat images if I was making the work. And I just found this to be a really moving, true expression of his experience. I I think for all sorts of reasons, he was probably deeply misunderstood, most of all by the religious establishment at the time. And that's a loss. It could have been like a teaching moment and a moment for, um, I think, deep communion, but it was a loss.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, in fact, they sued him, right? Um, they sued
1: him, and he had no money.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so he sued back. <laughs> so
1: he sued back, and they wrote him a check for a dollar.
2: Which is right. now in the archives. You can, he never cashed. Yeah, because they, the
0: they couldn't put a monetary value on his work back in the early 90s. So they're like, well, just give us a check for a dollar. <laughs> um,
2: yeah. One thing that I actually read in the Guardian's review of the show that I found really interesting was that one of the curators actually wanted to include an essay by a Jesuit in the catalog. Mm and it's because he kind of situates Wojnarowicz in this tradition of what he calls secular Catholicism and other artists that he places in that vein are like Nan Golden, right, mm. where they come from a, like, a Catholic background and their work can be seen as attacking the church, but actually it comes from like a more genetic like sort of empathetic understanding of what spirituality is. Mm. It's caring for like the outcast, it's caring for the least in society, and there are so many Bible verses you can use to back yeah. this up. It's the idea of like Christ taking on like the sins of the world. And to do that, he actually has to engage with it, not sort of look look up from it in like a removed sense. And the line in the Guardian review that I, I found really relevant was that what would Christ be doing today about our refugees, right? What would he be doing about Betsy DeVos? So which was going beyond like the idea of a sort of um, narrow view of pious but removed Christianity or mm-hmm. Catholicism and going to the roots, like to the gritty, like the dirty, like what it means to actually... To really care for somebody, where they're at.
0: Yeah, and he had such a sacramental worldview, and that yeah, just comes yeah. through in the symbols that he chooses, the way he engages, even the the classical Western artistic canon, which he critiques, right? right. But, but he takes, you know, for example, the the famous torso of Saint Sebastian, yes. pierced with arrows. This famous image that by good yeah, by the Italian painter Guido <laughs> Raini. But he puts it uh, repeatedly in his work as an example yeah. of beautiful male erotic desire. I thought that was so interesting that he, he, he appropriates, in a way, it, it is his to appropriate because he is Catholic. He's just taking his own tradition. But, yeah, uh, this way that he has of um, valorizing male desire, mm-hmm. uh, homosexual desire, which is this thing that, you know, Catholicism to this day, as, as we've seen, mm-hmm. rigorously excludes. He, he wants to say, well, no, actually, there's something very beautiful about observing the human body, not in a sick or sordid way, but in a deeply reverent, grace-filled way. Mm. I thought that was so interesting, how he, he uses the tradition in a way to critique the tradition, which is what the church's best theologians do, right? That's what <laughs> <laughs> that's what Catholic theology is. <laughs> right. But he kind of reminds me of uh, Kurt Cobain. Really? Uh, and I said this at lunch the other day. But in the same way that Kurt Cobain was able to speak really eloquently of his own kind of inner demons and passions and desires with a kind of raw Unstudied language. Yeah. That's the same way that Vinerovitch uses photography. Everything from you know the advertisements that he finds outside of grocery stores to the torso of Saint Sebastian. He kind of combines it all into this very rough and yet very uh, powerful and affecting collage. Right. Yeah, I don't know. So it's a uh, he, he had a gift, I guess. Yeah, he was. There was a review I read in the New Yorker that was saying, "Well, his individual works aren't really that good, but if you consider the context, you yeah. consider his developmental context." like, wow, this guy made tremendous progress in such a short amount of
2: time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, one thing that I really liked is that he, you know, some of his most aesthetically beautiful works, I think, are some of his perhaps least effective. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly of the Flower series that he did, which were so striking. They were very vibrant in color. And he included some text that he'd written in the corners that were painted over it. But really, the focal point was like were like close up details of just like exotic beautiful flowers and the text that inclu- was included next to these pieces the artist Zoe Leonard talks about mm-hmm. how you know she was uh, she felt really guilty that her works were so aesthetically beautiful whereas David Wojnarowicz like at this point in his career was so focused on activism that he was really working yeah. um, his, his his works had like more of a sense of urgency when he first view, the, viewed viewed mm-hmm. them and in response he told her beauty is what we're working for. You should never lose sight of beauty. Mm -hmm. And I think that really sums up what his message was. It was more that he just wanted to restore the source of normalcy to life, to be able to engage with what makes life worth living. Mm -hmm. And he wanted that to not be for just certain people, but he wanted that to be for everybody. Mm -hmm. And in his immediate context, it was people who were disenfranchised by public health policies and people who were facing like, like drug addiction, all the same issues that he had gone through. And I think something that Really struck me was that he was trying to blend this wor- this like world of like ethereal beauty with the beauty that you can find in the immediacy of mm-hmm. these crises, mm-hmm. where like in every little moment there's struggles. Like you, you have your own problems that you're facing, but there's beauty to be found in them anyway. And I think I found that beauty in the photographs he took of Peter Hujar right after he died. They're really haunting. In fact, he describes like these last moments of Peter Hujar, who was his best friend, his mentor, his confidant, like 20 years older than him who was diagnosed with AIDS and died pretty rapidly within the same year in which he was diagnosed. And moments after his death, there were a lot of people in the hospital room in which um, Hujar was in. And right after he died, Vojnarovic said that he had no emotion, but he asked everyone else in the room to leave so that he could take some photographs of his best friend for the last time. And he takes 23 photographs of Hujar's like, um, his face, his hands, his feet, and they're really unassuming in a sense in that they're just close-up details of the human body, right? They're they're mundane. They're mm-hmm. what you can see in anyone. But in the specific context in which they were taken and understanding, you know, the immediacy of emotion and passion and trauma and loss mm. that accompany these like seemingly banal, like meaningless photographs. After they were taken, Wojnarowicz was said to have just broke down, like lost complete control. And it was in that moment of documenting like the confluence of beauty and tragedy, mm-hmm. which is like kind of where he was working and having that now memorialized 26 years mm. after the artist died today. Mm. Um I don't know. There's a, new, there's a new imperative
1: for us, I think, as, like, viewers. I think that's a really good place to close.
0: I think so, too. I feel like you did it. <laughs> <I'm so laughs> you got it. I'm
1: so bad at that. Yeah, this. I was going to say any last closing remarks, but I actually think that that was...
0: A... I think that was perfect. Yeah. Okay. You'll probably... He'll probably cut some of Hujar's, though, Yeah.
1: But... Was he'll tighten it up. Cool.
0: Yeah. But it was... It was incredible.